Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined as always by Chris Bougay. Hey, Chris. How's it going, Rachel? It's going good. Excited for another listener question episode. Me too. Me too. These have been a long time coming, and I am so glad that we are actually getting to them uh, because I think they're going to help a lot of people. You know, I mean, my Aunt Sue had this phrase, and she would say, the only stupid question is the one you don't ask, you know? And so you'd want to ask every question because there's other people that if you have that question, then chances are someone else does. So thank you for sharing these questions. Don't don't ever feel intimidated not to write us. Um, please do, and we will get to them eventually. Patreon supporters get the first shot at it. We're going to bump you to the top of the list, but everyone else, please send us these questions. I'm so happy to... If you're having them, that means other people are having that question too. Yes. And if you guys have a question, you can email us at talkingwithtech at gmail.com. Also, not sure if you guys have checked out our new website. We got a new website, Chris, which we don't talk about enough, but it's talkingwithtech.org. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I love going on our website. You have We have all of our episodes um, and we're going to continue to build it out. But um, if you haven't checked out the new website, definitely go to talkingwithtech.org and see what it's all about. Sir, th- thank you, Patreon supporters. You're the ones who made that website a possibility, and that's exactly what we try and do with that money is put it right back into stuff for you to enjoy. So here's the question that we got today. Um, it's a little bit of a long one, but I think it's good because this is from a parent um, talking all about her experience with AAC. It says, I've recently found this podcast and group, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity for the opportunity to learn so much as a parent without a speech communication background. So thank you. I'm currently binge listening to back episodes and wanted to ask in here, does anyone have experiences they could tell me about of working with multiple AAC users within a single family? Before we get into her specific situation, let's just talk about her her intro there for a second. First of all, she does what I do. I binge listen to episodes, uh, try and listen to a bunch in a row. If, uh, if we're going on road trips, we, we get a bunch in a, in a row and we binge listen to those. So um, same thing. I mean, is that how you consume some of your podcasts, Rachel? Yes. I'm pretty much like, I'm an intense person, Chris. So like if I get like down a rabbit hole, like I go deep. <laughs> so yes, like if I have a question, I'll be searching on Google. I'll be searching on, you know, my podcast app to see if I can find any relevant podcasts. So yes, I'm definitely a, a binge kind of gal. Now, the other thing she says here is she's a parent without a speech slash communication background. Now that's interesting to me because I think most parents are that, right? They don't have some, but you think over the years how many become even more experts in AAC than speech therapists, than teachers, right? I, I, I never sell a parent short because the parents often have the most knowledge when it comes to AAC, not just with their own kids, but in kids in general, because they're the ones doing the deep dive into the research sometimes. Um, and you can think of all these parents. We've had many on our, on our podcast that started out as parents uh, of students who use AAC, and now they're gurus in the field or they've turned into speech they've they've now started to pursue it as speech language pathologist or beyond um which i think is fascinating and i just want to give a shout out to those episodes because they're fantastic i feel like it's so important as clinicians to listen to a parent's perspective because we don't know what it's like if we don't have a child with special needs we don't know their experience and they're such a huge integral part of our team and so um if you haven't listened to 
the episode with Aaron Sheldon, the episode with Dana Nieder, Caitlin Calder. It was a two-part one because her and I had such a great time talking to each other. Definitely go back and listen to those episodes because they're fantastic and these parents are fantastic. Um, they were so dedicated to their children that they got so much information that they decided to just say, well, I might as well just get a degree in this because I'm almost there. <laughs> so let's go on, Rachel. What's next? Okay, so this parent says, I have three children with developmental disabilities. My three-year-old is nonverbal, preverbal, did a LAMP trial in October, and is currently working with LAMP Words for Life on an iPad while we wait on funding for her accent. My five-year-old was a harder sell because he struggles more with fine motor and vision issues than his little sister does. And because he doesn't show the same communicative intent, we've finally started a trial of LAMP VI with him. We have a loner accent 1000 that just arrived last week. It's possible that we may determine that Unity is a better fit for him. Not sure yet. So that's two kids with similar devices, but different apps, different symbols, different numbers of words unmasked. And then my 13 month old is receiving early intervention as well. And I'm absolutely anticipating that someday we'll be going down this road with her too. And I don't want to wait as long as we have with her siblings, especially knowing what I know now. So, speaking very practically, what does modeling look like for us? All three of my kids need a lot of support at mealtimes. Only my middle daughter is walking independently, so lots of carrying. I have a camera strap to put a device on my hip, but I can't imagine having two devices slung over opposite shoulders while trying to carry a five-year-old up the stairs. My situation can't be unique, but I just haven't met anyone else who is trying to introduce AAC to two different kids with different learning needs at the same time. I would love any insight that anyone might have to share. Many thanks. Well, first of all, that's awesome that you have the AAC devices there and that you're using them and you're knowing about modeling. First of all, that's a huge leg up, right? That you already are thinking, okay, she's already thinking, oh, well, all right, I need to be modeling, but a barrier is that I've got two different systems, but not, uh, the, the, uh, possibly three coming up. And then the, but the benefit there is that I always see, the, see these particular systems, Lamp Words for Life and Unity, as siblings. I always call them siblings because they're very similar. They're based on the same uh, philosophy, and most of the symbols are in similar places. Uh, so, so that you can kind of intermix them a little bit I and mean, at least that's how i think of it um and so so yeah i would use one um possibly unity possibly lamp but i'd pick one and i would then just start modeling on it i think another low-hanging fruit would be to actually integrate some low-tech supports in the home so having a printout of, you know, a symbol, whatever symbol that might be, um, you know, on and off next to the sink when you brush your teeth, for example. Um, those types of things I think could be great because, you know, yes, we want to teach children the motor plans for where their symbols are on their device, but we're also really need to teach the actual language. Like, what does this concept mean? What does on actually mean? And so that's where, you know, I, and I am just picturing this mom with like two devices, like running around the house, you know, trying to be a parent, but also trying to be a speech therapist. Um, you know, that's a lot. And so I love integrating low tech visual supports for kids to, you know, just get used to seeing it every day. You touch it when you say on, when you turn the water on, um, 
if you happen to have the device on you, you can do a second model on the device, um, but that's a really easy way to start incorporating the language at your house. Um, just putting up those, those symbols um, around your house. It also helps trigger communication partners to actually model. Cause I think that's the other thing, right? Is like, we get, just get so caught up in our day-to-day -day busyness that we forget to model. Um, and so that little reminder on the sink or on the door, on the cabinet, on the remote, those types of things can really be beneficial. So I wonder here, when I look at the different systems and we really think about what she's saying that because they're using LAMP VI uh, and the student might have, um, well, it definitely has vision issues. And so LAMP VI, if you're not familiar, has like a back black background with um, different colored symbols. So uh, it almost looks like you've hit the high contrast button and everything is flipped. So instead of white, it's a black background. And so I wonder if you were looking at what kind of what's, if she's asking which symbol set do I use to model, I might go with that one because I don't think that would hurt the person who doesn't need the black symbols, they're still going to be learning the same sort of symbol set. I, but if you used the white symbols, that might be hurting or not as beneficial to the student with the vision impairment. I guess hurting is a strong word, but just not as beneficial as the as using the VI. And then when you're saying the low-tech supports, what I could sort of see there in both of these systems is, one, yes, making possibly larger, like you said, on-off of the symbols. Um, so another thing to talk about when it comes to the low tech supports, and we were saying you were saying you could put the symbols up in certain areas, so we could make those symbols a little bit larger if we needed to. And you said put them next to a certain area, so so maybe uh, you know there's an up and down or or open closed on the fridge is another one that I've seen people do. So you could put those symbols open closed, like you said, at magnets or something like that. But because of these particular systems and they're built on motor planning, imagine taking kind of a screenshot. People can't see me, but I'm making like a, a rectangle, uh, an eight and a half by 11 screenshot uh, of the homepage and drawing a circle around the first hit and then an arrow going to the second hit where there's another circle. And that could be brought out in a very... Um, I mean, it's like a bright yellow or something like that could be used to kind of show what those are. Again, to kind of show where the motor plan is. Um, and then you, as the parent, and all the other supports you might have in the house would be could be modeling uh, on that low-tech device, even if you didn't was wearing your, your high-tech device strapped around you at all times. Yeah, no, I think those are both, like, really good ideas. Um, I think that ultimately we can get really hung up on do the symbols match and you know all these details that at some level like if you're making decisions like yes like would it be great if the symbols look the same of course um is that like gonna make or break it no the most important thing is that you're having motivating exciting experiences paired with language and so I, I, again, I think we can get stuck in the weeds and, you know, myself included, sometimes I'm like, you know, being so nitpicky about every little detail and I'm like, wait a second, this isn't that important in the grand scheme of things. Um, and so, you know, what I would encourage this parent to think about is, you know, how can I make sure that I'm creating highly engaging experiences paired with core words? That's the ice cream. 
all that other stuff is the sprinkles, right? But if the ice cream is totally like having fun with your kids and just having those devices nearby when you're having fun with them and having the experiences be something that are memorable for you and memorable from them and stuff they laugh at and 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 find yucky and gross and and fun, absolutely. That that is the that's that's the sauce right there. And I think too, it's important, um, especially for this, because I'm really trying to think through the lens of this parent. I'm like, if I were this parent, like, what would I do? Knowing all that I know about AAC and speech therapy and all these things. Um, and I think the way that I would look, look through the lens of, you know, what can I do that's highly motivating? And, you know, sometimes that might be just with one of my children. It might not be a group experience. Um, I think that Oftentimes, you know, as clinicians, we try to encourage parents to model all the time and to teachers to model all the time. But what really matters is the quality, right? What really matters is, is the child really excited and engaged? Um, It can only be for five minutes, but those five minutes of quality time spent with your child modeling a specific word, like that's going to generalize way more than like, when there's like mediocre level of engagement and like the child's just kind of like, you know, if, if they're doing anything and they're not motivated, just like kind of like hitting the button or like imitating a model, like that's not going to generalize. Um, and so really just setting aside maybe, you know, a small part of the day, um, five to 10 minutes, just, you know, getting kids excited and then pairing that with language. Um, because I think that it sounds, I, I'm overwhelmed reading all of the, the question from this parent. So I'm sure she feels overwhelmed knowing like I have to model all the things all the time. Um, just start small and start with what kids are already really excited about those experiences that you're already having with your kids. Um, you know, and then just start building off of that momentum. So let's recap really quickly. One would be if you're modeling and you're having supports, you could put supports up around the house, but model uh, through your typical routine. Second, uh, make sure the activities you're doing are highly motivating and fun so that you're having engaging experiences together and and you're not turning people off to AAC. And then the third part, portion that maybe we haven't talked about yet is one of those highly engaging activities might be having a shared experience around literacy, either reading or, uh, again, maybe it's even watching some sort of video and then you're talking about the words in that video and maybe you have the, the captions on and you're talking about the words. There's different ways to to engage in literacy activities, but building that sort of literacy experience for your children uh, will, again, have long-term gains. Definitely. Um, this was a really great question, Chris. I feel like this, this, this is one that, you know, this is specific to a parent and her children, but it could very easily translate to a teacher and her classroom, right? We get that question all the time. Like my kids are all on different devices. Like, what do I do? Um, you know, and the, of course the core word of the week is a great strategy that both parents and teachers can use to, you know, kind of laser focus their energy on one specific word, um, to make it feel a little bit more manageable. Um, so I would recommend that too, for this parent is, you know, do a core word of the week and that makes it feel a little less daunting, I think. Couldn't agree more. Okay, Chris. So what's our interview this week? 
So the interview this week is one that we've been actually teasing a little bit uh, in previous episodes. Back when we did uh, bingo, remember when I lost a bingo and you you trounced me by one point? One of the questions there were, you have like jewelry with AAC on it, or do you have some sort of wearable with AAC on it, something like that? And um, the interview today is with um, Alexis Martinez and Natalie Fry. They were students that I met when I was in Arizona with Caroline Musselwhite doing AAC in the desert. Uh, they they were doing a little presentations there, and I got to hang out with them a little bit afterwards. And uh, Alexis had made like a um, a communication tool for communication partners that went around her wrist, you know, and that I thought was fascinating. So we talk a little bit about that. And so you know, we've been trying to have uh, on the podcast students and getting student voices and get the experience of uh, people who are just coming into the field and and also veterans as well. We try and get all of the voices. Um, and so this is some students, and her, as they are, I think they actually have now just they've graduated since the recording, but they were just finishing up their uh, their graduate program at the time of the recording. Awesome, Chris. So let's head into your interview with Alexis Martinez and Natalie Fry. People all over the world need augmentative and alternative communication. Despite the global need, some areas of the world don't have access to the same resources as others. Low-tech AAC can be a functional, cost-effective way to bring communication to more people universally. Low-tech tools are also used widely by high-tech AAC users to have a backup or alternative means to communicate. These low-tech tools often get torn, crushed, crumpled, soaked, or otherwise destroyed easily. They aren't often made with durability in mind. Enter PixiePal, a durable low-tech solution. Place printed symbols in transparent plastic containers called Pixie Snaps, which fit snugly into a portable carrying case. Each case allows for three double-sided Pixie Snaps, giving people six surfaces to interact with. The carrying case acts like a book, allowing a user to flip between multiple pages of symbols. This innovative design makes PixiePal the perfect, portable, customizable, and splash-proof low-tech solution. You can check it out for yourself by following at PixiePal on Facebook. But that's not all. PixiePal has partnered with some amazing organizations, such as the Nika Project, the Kaizora Center, OIC Cambodia, and many more to help bring functional and affordable AAC to anyone in the world. PixiePal has been a UNICEF Champions of Children supporter since 2019. The first generation of PixiePal is blue, in tribute of UNICEF's work worldwide. A PixiePal crowdfunding campaign has already launched. You can follow, comment, and share the initiative by going to PixiePal.com. That's P-I-C-S-E-E-P-A-L.com. That's Pic, like picture, C, like with your eyes, and Pal, like a friend. Send them a direct message and register your interest for one of the first PixiePals ever made. Each time a PixiePal is purchased, another PixiePal will be donated to one of these trusted partners. The goal is to donate 1 million PixiePals worldwide. To join us in being part of this global movement, go to facebook.com backslash PixiePal and hit the follow button to help bring AAC to everyone in the world who needs it.
Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I am here interviewing Natalie Fry and Alexis Martinez. Am I saying those names right? Yes. Yep. So, Natalie, Alexis, I met you when I was in Arizona. I was at the AAC in the Desert Conference, and um, Natalie, you were there. Alexis, you were there, and we got to chat and hang out afterwards and play some games over at Caroline Musselwhite's house. Uh, it was super fun, right? Yeah, yeah. that was great. <laughs> so, so I know you a little bit, but for those that are listening now, can you tell people a little bit about you? Who are you? What do you do? What are your career goals? Give us the, give us the skinny. Okay, so my name is Alexis Martinez, and I'm currently a second-year graduate student at California State University, Chico. I first got interested in AAC when I was in undergrad, and then moving forward, I had a client at the university clinic who used AAC and kind of fell in love with it even more. So my graduate school clinician, my supervisor actually got me in touch with Brandy Lee Wetland to do... Um, an internship down in Arizona, and I also got an intern with Deanna Wagner and Caroline Musselwhite and Sharon <laughs> Hendrickson. That's, so that's a little bit about awesome. Me. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then um, I'm Natalie. I'm a, a second year master's student at the University of Arizona, um, graduating with my master's this year, which is great. Um, I'm planning to work in schools after I graduate and um, hopefully one day become a clinical instructor. That's really something I'm interested in and getting um, students more experience with AAC. Um, my experience with AAC really um, didn't start until the summer, last summer, uh, when I also worked at the Yossi Puello camp with uh, Sharon and I got to meet Alexis there, which was really great. So um, ever since then, I've really been working hard to make sure I get a lot of experience with AAC. Gotcha. Okay. So that makes sense to me. I was wondering how you two knew each other because you don't go to the same universities, right? No. no. Yeah. <laughs> Ever since um, that camp, when we were really learning a lot together, we've um, stayed in touch and kind of been sharing resources and um, all kinds of great stuff. Okay. So let's talk about that. Since you go to two different universities, what has your experience been like at those different universities when it comes specifically to AAC pre-service intervention and pre-service, um, you know, learning? Yeah. Well, I, I can start talking about it. At University of Arizona, you know, like in my specific experience, I feel like there's kind of two parts it, for graduate student experiences with AAC. There's like what you get in the classroom and then what you get clinically. Um, in the classroom at University of Arizona, there's not a required AAC course. So um, in a couple of my classes, we did have like a couple days of class where we would talk about AAC as part of the class, but there wasn't a specific course. So this semester, I'm taking an elective course uh, that's two units in AAC, and it's a, it's a really great course. We do a project where we write a... Um, a funding letter and we do a kind of mock assessment. We get to speak to a lot of um, people in the community in Tucson who work with AAC. So it's a great class. It's just, um, you know, it'd be awesome if it was a required class, right? So, mm -hmm. um, but that's been good experience so far. Um, and then in terms of clinically, I think there, I think it depends, you know, I can't really compare to other universities, but I think we have a, uh, we have a good amount of opportunities, but often you do have to kind of advocate for them. And that's something we can talk about later is kind of if you're a student, how you can advocate to get 
the experiences you want with AAC in graduate school. Uh, for me, my first year, I didn't have too much experience with AAC. I didn't have a lot of clients with AAC. And I was really curious about it. So I went to my clinical instructors and just sort of asked, like, is there anything I can do this summer to get some of that experience? And I'm really glad I did because then I wouldn't have met Alexis and I wouldn't have gone to the conferences and met you guys. So um, I feel really lucky that I've gotten to have that experience. And now this year, um, clinically, I was in a school and got to have some AAC experience. And I was in a um, medical pediatric outpatient clinic and got to get a little bit of AAC experience with that too. Gotcha. And Alexis? So I kind of agree with Natalie. I think it's a two, there's kind of two parts. I do think that a big part of trying to get AAC experience is definitely like advocating. I'm telling your professors kind of like what you want. Um, there is actually a three unit course that is required at CSU Chico. Um, I'm in that course right now. We're learning a lot. We're learning a lot about core vocabulary. Um, we have like a lot of hands-on projects. I think I wish that this course was a lot earlier because there are a lot of individuals at our clinic that do use AAC. So I think as like a first year graduate student, when a lot of us did have clients that use AAC, we didn't know a whole lot. Um, and I didn't really know where to kind of begin when I was searching the web. I didn't know like what resources were good and were not great. So I kind of felt like a little bit underprepared, I would say first semester. Um, so I kind of wish that the university course was transferred over to your first year. Um, and let's see what else. I think that's kind of about it. I think Natalie kind of touched everything that we kind of talked about. Yeah, I know Alexis and I have had conversations about kind of our education in AAC and how we both had really good opportunities, but we have talked about how it does sort of feel like AAC is not necessarily an afterthought, but it does come later in our graduate school education. And it would be really nice if that kind of education was happening earlier, not just because, you know, we see clients and we want to see them, but also because I think it, you know, the stuff, the classes that we get earlier, it almost seems like those are the things they really want us to know, like the most important things. And because every clinician for the most part is going to have a client who needs AAC or who uses AAC, you know, to me, I think it would be so important to have some of that education right at the beginning to really teach graduate students the importance of this. And another thought Natalie and I had was to maybe if universities don't want to do like a whole course, maybe like implement like sections of AAC in different courses. So you kind of have AAC throughout your education, um, implementing it in a language class, implementing it in a motor speech disorders class, like implementing it early on yeah. in these courses so you don't feel so behind the eight ball. So let me, let me, can I dive into that just a little bit and let's talk about that. So um, I often, when I'm thinking about like universal design, that's something I talk about quite frequently when I'm doing presentations and things like that. And I, there is this, this struggle to, when you're designing an educational experience to think, well, everyone needs to know it all up front. You know, how do you parcel it out, right? And so um, what one of the things we try and do with when I talk about UDL is embed it all th throughout, throughout the, the entire thing. And I think that's what you're getting at there, Alexis, is that as opposed to AAC being its own course or maybe in addition to it being its own course, if there's little segments throughout all the courses, I'm wondering if the professors that have been around for a while 
would feel comfortable with that? Like, do you feel like they're, um, the experience level is there? You know what I mean? To, to be able to embed it in, like, I've been, I know my language development class and that's how I teach it. And therefore I could not insert AAC because that means something, I'd have to lose something else, you know? Um, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. And everybody kind of has their areas that they specialize in and feel really comfortable with. And I mean, grad school is short. There's so much to learn in such a short amount of time that I really do understand that feeling of, well, if I include this and I have to lose something else, I think that that, I mean, it's a valid concern. And I do think I think that Alexis's point is really good. And it's something that the U of A, I think, does a pretty good job of, or at least is like trying to incorporate more, um, like my adult language disorders class. We had a day where we talked about AAC and my motor speech disorders class. We had a day where we talked about AAC. So I do think it kind of, I it, one way that that can work is if you as a professor or, you know, as an educator don't feel comfortable or don't feel like you're the person who should be giving that lecture, inviting a guest speaker, kind of having somebody come in and then kind of the two of the two educators can kind of integrate the two um, materials, you know, AAC and kind of the specialist in whatever that subject is. If there was only some way to invite people into your classroom <laughs> remotely, I'm sure there's some way we could figure that out over the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I really? feel like maybe this um, new era of doing a lot of things online will open up a lot of new opportunities for educating, maybe. Absolutely. Alexis, what are your thoughts? I completely agree with Natalie. I think that that's a great way to kind of, if professors feel like that they're not prepared to bring someone in to come speak. I also think it would be, you can also help this work by inviting like your like local representatives to come into courses. Um, so they can kind of talk about their specific devices. And I think from there, they'll be able to give out the resources that people like professors and graduate students could go use. So I gotcha. think that that would be another way to you to do that or to one day just go to like a have from like lending libraries, you can get devices that are free of charge. All you have to do is pay for the shipping back. And even just to have one day where you get a bunch of devices and then you practice kind of like, well, how would I now scaffold to do this with someone that uses AAC? Mm -hmm. So just kind of coming up right there, hands on stuff that, you are already doing in class. So just implementing AAC when you're doing an activity, I think could also help that. Cool. Just so now, people feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Natalie, did I get the story right? So you were interested in AAC. So you went to your professors and said, what can I do uh, to expand my own learning? And that's how they f either looked up or found or knew of the camp that you went to where you met Alexis. Is that right? Yeah, so the camp, we the University of Arizona already had a relationship with Sharon and her camp, so I got to talk to some other grad students who had been at the camp and that sort of thing too. And so, yeah, my clinical instructor, who's kind of the head of our clinical placements, I went and I kind of talked to her and I said, you know, what can I do? Gotcha. So, it, but it does sound like you initiated that, like you went to them as opposed to there was some sort of thing on the board that you saw or some sort of, you know what I mean? Like um, internet posting or something. So in that case, and I, and I, don't get me wrong, I'm not criticizing anybody. I really love the initiative of a student saying, okay, this is something I'm interested in. I am taking charge of my own learning. Please guide me instructor. You know, mm -hmm. um, I like that so much better than the instructor going, Hey, you should do this. You should do this. You know? 
Sure. So if, if you're a, a grad student that is kind of interested in AAC and you want to build your experiences, what are some, what some advice would you give to, uh, to, to people? Yeah. And I'll actually, I'll let Alexis start, but I will say also, um, you know, I, I was really excited about AAC. I wanted to kind of get that opportunity. And I think there's a mix at the U of A there, there was kind of, I did have to take that initiative just cause I hadn't gotten that experience before, but I was also lucky because, um, one of my clinical instructors really kind of, if not specializes, like sees a lot of AAC clients and is really knowledgeable about it. One of our clinical instructors. And so I knew I could go to her because she was a person who kind of had those connections and had that knowledge. So, you know, it wasn't kind of me like, Oh, is there anybody out there? But (laughs) kind of more of like, okay, I know who I can connect with and kind of who I can do that. So, I mean, that's sort of one piece of advice is get to know your professors, your clinical instructors, see who knows what you want to know about, and then kind of get into their network and see what they can kind of who they can connect you with. I agree, Natalie. I think networking is key. I also think that it's really important to like follow, go on Facebook, like all the Facebook page, listen to podcasts, do like reach out to people, Facebook message people in order to get information. I think that that is one thing as a graduate student that you should do and continue to do throughout your whole career because we're never going to know everything. So it's really important to be able to have people that you can collaborate with and to be able to not feel afraid to ask people questions and not feel afraid to see like if people will take you for an intern. And, um, even if you are an SLP in the field and if you do feel underprepared, seeing if you can go shadow someone, um, I think that that's a great way to learn a lot. I feel like I learned a lot during my internship by shadowing. And, um, I think definitely following the model of I do, we do, you do having the, um, having your clinical instructor be the I and then doing it together. And then after you feel comfortable having you do it. So I definitely think just advocating for what you need is really important. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because you had the great fortune of having some really, I mean, I know some of those mentors that you had, right? Uh, And I know how awesome they are. Uh, So let's talk about that. What sort of advice would you give to an SLP that it is uh, taking on students or taking on someone that is in an internship? Um, Definitely just being like confident and being able to know that your graduate student might be feel like a little bit intimidated. So maybe at first just having the, like the supervisor do the work and then have the graduate clinician come when they feel like they're still at the session, but having them kind of feel comfortable with like seeing you, seeing you interact with the client, seeing you interact with the family members. And then um, after the um, supervisor does it have an activity that you, that the supervisor does with you that you can implement in the session the next time. So you feel really comfortable doing it with the supervisor. And then finally, after you kind of feel comfortable, then you can kind of lead the session. I definitely feel like one thing that all my supervisors did was that they had like confidence in me. And I felt like that was like a big piece of it. I felt like if they didn't have confidence in me, then I wasn't going to have confidence in myself. And also as a supervisor, I really think it's important to like share all the resources that you have, um, share like all the books that you have, share all of the research articles, just share everything because 
they're teaching you kind of way up high and little things are going to trickle down. And I feel like it was really important that they just kind of gave me everything. And then I kind of like was able to slowly kind of chip out the iceberg. So I think just having a supervisor be confident in your skills is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would also say that I think there's probably a lot of people out there that don't necessarily feel like they are experts in AAC. And so then when they take students and they're having their students, you know, observe them and work with their AAC clients, that might be like a part, a point of insecurity feeling like, Oh gosh, well, I don't know who am I to say anything. And to that, I really say it like I had a clinical instructor or a supervisor last semester who was so awesome. And, you know, I don't know if she would really consider herself an expert in AAC, but I learned so much from her because she really just kind of embraced the fact that, you know, things were going to happen. It wasn't always going to be perfect. And she really brought me into that. And so it was kind of, it was great because it felt like we were partners in working with these clients and, you know, she would ask me for my ideas. And if I would say like, gosh, well, I don't know, I don't know that much. She would just say like, well, you know, what are your instincts? What do you think about this? And really as a student, it was very empowering to me to feel valued. Like Alexa said, like having her have confidence in me. And I really liked that she wasn't just saying, well, you know, follow my lead or do this, even when she didn't feel confident, she was always very honest about kind of like, well, you know, we're going to try this out, we're going to see what happens, and then we're going to talk about it. And so I really think that is something that all supervisors should, that's like a mindset supervisors should adopt is just that it's like, you know, I want to learn from you, but I can learn a lot by working with you. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is, I just think it helps students. I was thinking about how you know, the, the children we work with, you know, if I've worked mostly in pediatric uh, settings. So like, the children we work with require a lot of flexibility, but I think that students really do need a lot of structure as well. And so I think the balance for that is, or at least, you know, I as a student really benefit from structure. And so kind of having some preparation in advance, like knowing, okay, here are the clients that I would like you to work with. And here's kind of the general times you might see them, even if that's not going to be the same all the time, having a little bit of a plan up front, you know, introducing your uh, graduate student to the people you work with, the paras, the teachers, or if you're not in a school, you know, your coworkers, so that they know everybody going in and they know what the resources are. I think that is a good way of kind of providing somebody with the structure of kind of what you do, but then still allowing them a little bit of flexibility inside of that framework. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you, did either of you have any clinical experience when you were an undergrad? Well, I, I personally did not. I actually did my undergraduate degree in um, global studies and Spanish. I did the leveling track at University of Arizona. So I didn't have any experience outside of just shadowing in undergrad. I did actually work with the um, Kegels at the Kegel Autism Center, which is how I kind of learned about this field. But honestly, that's a story for another day. But <laughs> not a lot of undergrad experience here. What about you, Alexis? I didn't really, I didn't have a lot of undergrad experience either. I never went to go shadow a clinician that wasn't um, required for us to get in our grad program. Um, so I didn't really have a lot of experience. So when I got, so my first year the, the first day at clinic, I was very nervous. I was so scared. I didn't really have a lot of experience. I didn't really know how sessions were supposed to 
flow. Our first session was 40, I think it was 50 minutes. So I was really nervous. I'm like, what am I supposed to do for 50 minutes? So I definitely do agree with Natalie where I feel like I know that we need to be flexible, but I feel like it's also good to have kind of that structure to kind of see it before you just are thrown into it. So So I'm going to share a little story from my past. And when I was a senior in my undergraduate, um, and I did clinical, that this, this is where I got some clinical experience. In fact, I had some when I was a junior and then uh, like that was like a whole course was to do clinical experience uh, at a school for your, um, before you graduate. And so my uh, SLP that the school, the very first day I walked in, she's like, tomorrow, it's all you. You're doing the whole thing. You're working everything. So she she did the exact opposite of what you are saying, Alexis, but sort of in the way that you're saying, Natalie, that she didn't really expect that I would know what I was doing. She was going to be there to support me, but it was all me. And by the Mm -hmm. end, um, uh, so of course I felt like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? Right. And I hear all my friends, you know, that you go to through school with, they're all like, oh no, I'm watching for the first two or three weeks. And then I'm going to start doing one or two groups. And then me, nope. I was like hired. I was the person, but by uh-huh. the end, because I had been doing it a lot longer than anyone else, I, I was so comfortable doing everything, you know? Where, where I think my, my colleagues, when they, when they left, um, you know, when I say my colleagues, my classmates, they were still feeling like, well, I think I'm getting secure in this, but I'm not sure, you know? So they, she pushed me right into the deep end to do it. Yeah. But with that mindset, and Natalie, this is why I, um, uh, I think it could work either way, but what you were saying about, like, she, she did not, she really thought of it as like we were doing it together. You know, like, yeah. like I, I'm going to, I'm going to support you. I'm going to be more of a coach than a consultant. So, you know, so what'd you think? How'd that go? You tell me about it. What would you do different? Not like, Hey, you should have moved here. You should have done this. You should have done, there wasn't a lot of should have, you know, it was more reflective. Um, so, and I feel like that might be different. I think a skill of your professor would be knowing who you are. Do you know what I mean? As a student, like, and that's going back to those relationships that you were saying. I don't know. What do you think? Does that freak you out? Or does that like, I don't know. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, my first semester was similar to yours where I had just this great clinical instructor. I was lucky because I knew her already from my leveling year. So I was familiar with her and I felt more familiar in the, uh, like I felt more comfortable in the clinical rooms that we had. So I had a little bit of an advantage that way, but I agree. And I think that I don't think that what you or Alexis or I are saying is even really that different. I think as long as there's really good communication and you ask the student, you know, like, you know, what, what is your style? You know, some people do have a style where they really benefit from watching a little bit first and then doing things. But I also think that, like you said, it's important not to ever drag that out too much. And I think as long as there is good communication you don't have to do that. Even for someone who is more comfortable maybe watching and waiting first, you can at least bring them in. And so maybe they aren't taking the lead, but they are there in the session, kind of like what you said. And I, I think that as long as there's kind of that rapport and that trust there, it's really easy to just dive in and then talk about it later. Even if it felt like a total failure to be able to just debrief later, talk about what went well, what did not go well at all, and kind of making that work from there, I think is so valuable for students because I think so many of us in these programs are like 
total perfectionist, like never, ever want to be wrong, like really. And it comes from a place of caring so much, you know? And so just being able to know that someone is watching you, somebody cares about you. They don't want you to fail and you're not failing. You're just learning. You know, I think that that is really an important mindset to be in. I completely agree with you, Natalie. I do think communication is key. And I, Brandy over summer, actually, she made me fill out after every one of our, or after the sessions for every day, I filled out a form at my house. So I was all comfortable. And there was like questions that were talking about, like, what, how do you think the session go? What do you think that you could have done better? How could I have helped you? And I felt like filling out that form after each day, I felt like I was reflecting a lot and I felt like I didn't have to come up with the answer right away. And I felt like it gave Brandy a time to kind of review it before we met. And I do think that that really was key because she kind of was trying to figure out like what my interests were and what I wanted to learn more about and what we we can do together as a team that can help these students. And I definitely think that model of trying to kind of figure and being reflective kind of by myself in my own house was definitely beneficial to the communication aspect to kind of what I wanted to get out of the clinical experience. So I do think that that was key. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking kind of tying it back to AAC too, a lot of the clients that we see or the students, you know, the people we see who use AAC, a lot of them are, you know, medically fragile or have complex communication needs. And so I do think kind of Alexis in my discussion of kind of like different communication or different supervisory styles, you know, the pushing you right in versus like waiting, observing, I do, you, we do, you do, that sort of thing. You know, I think we want to tend to be a little more cautious when working with those uh, AAC users just because you don't want to have a student be in a spot where suddenly they're dealing with something that is beyond kind of what they know how to handle. And so that's where I think that supervisory style of just we're both in it together. We're going to kind of work with things as we go. But I, as the supervisor, trust you as the student to just try things, you know, as you think about them, just try them and we'll talk about them later. You know, I think that's kind of a really good balance for working with a population that might be so unfamiliar to people. And, and because of that feeling of responsibility, a little bit more nerve wracking uh, because there's a lot going on. And that's, I think that's really where the learning can happen is when you're kind of in it together. So let me ask you this. Um, Both of you have a strong interest in AAC, and there's a lot to learn when it comes to speech-language pathology in general. How did you both gravitate towards AAC? You have some sort of story that that made you fall into this? I'm curious. Um, So for me, I actually nannied for a little boy who had cerebral palsy who used AAC when he was who used AAC in my junior year of undergrad. So I kind of had some experience with his family and some experience with working with him. And after that, I kind of like fell in love with it. I just kind of felt like it was like kind of a calling. And then, um, then fast forward to graduate school, I actually got an email from our clinical supervisor asking us who wanted to have AAC client. So I responded back, yes. And so I was on kind of like the AAC team group. So, um, I had a client in the clinic used AAC. And then after that, my supervisor was like, you're, you seem like that you're really passionate about this. I really want you to get an internship with AAC. I'm going to try to like work things out. So long story short, she put me in contact with Brandy and that's kind of how I came about AAC. Awesome. Natalie. 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you asked. So I, I kind of mentioned earlier that in my undergraduate experience, I was working with the Kegels at the Kegel Autism Center. And so I learned a lot about um, pivotal response treatment or pivotal response therapy. Um, we call it PRT. That is sort of a speech and behavioral therapy um, that was developed at the um, Autism Center in Santa Barbara. And so that's kind of how I was introduced to this field is kind of through that area. Um, and, you know, I learned a lot working with them and it was a really good experience for me. And it's really informed a lot of kind of how I navigate the field now. Um, but it was a treatment that was very explicitly verbal. And so AC, it wasn't necessarily like talked down on or anything like that. It was just one of those things where it was like, well, why would he need a device if he can do this therapy? Right. And so that was kind of what I learned at that time of my life. And I came to the university and kind of, you know, my first year, there wasn't a ton of education on AAC, but I knew some of my peers were working with clients who used AAC and um, my professors and clinical instructors that I really respected were really uh, doing a lot of work with this. And so I was, I just became very curious about it just because my education up to that point was just very lacking in AAC. And there was kind of a little bit of this, it just from my perspective, from what my experience had been kind of like, that it wasn't useful or that it was just expensive. That it was like, what's the point, you know? And so for me, I just sort of felt like, okay, well, it feels like I don't have the whole story. So I really just want to learn about this. So I really actually went into it feeling like not, not like I was going to learn nothing, but I was kind of like, well, I don't know about this, but how am I supposed to know about it if I never get any experience of it? So that was why I was really pushing for that because I wanted I felt like I was missing pieces of the story. And then um, it was so, so cool to learn about it. And I feel so lucky that I got to have the experience that I did after kind of having the initial experiences with AAC that I did. Yeah, in some ways, I think both of you have more experience than some speech therapists that are currently working in the field. Do you know what I mean with, with AAC? Sure. <laughs> well, and it, I think it's because it's something that if you, if you are nervous about working with a the population, there are ways to kind of avoid that. And I think that goes for anything. And mm -hmm. so it's not necessarily like, I still think people who don't have a lot of experience with this, it's not necessarily that they're doing anything bad. It's like, I think because there's this fear of doing something wrong, I think a lot of people come to that feeling like, well, you know, it's better for me to just do the work I feel very confident in than to, you know, do something wrong with a population I'm not as comfortable with. And like, I get that. That's yeah. really, I think that's a, you know, it's a powerful feeling. I would say too, you said there's many uh, speech therapists or, or pre-service teachers that are going to be speech therapists that have that sort of perfectionist, like again, from, cause you, they don't want to hurt anybody. They want to do the best job they can. Right. So uh, everyone's trying to get all A's in all their classes and do the, the best job ever. And so doing something that's uncomfortable might mean you fail or that it's a risk. And that can be really, really intimidating for people, but you are both modeling hey, let's go out there and take those risks. Let's go out there. This is how growth happens is by, you know, is trying to learn something new that you, uh, learning doesn't happen if you feel comfortable. You got to feel a little uncomfortable to, to learn it. So let me ask you that question is, um, what are you curious about now? I mean, we're, now that you've learned a little bit about AAC and you are uh, had some experience, what's got your mind reeling? What do you want to learn next? What, what happens next? Well, I don't... 
I think that there's just so much more to learn. I think I don't really necessarily know like which area of AAC I really want to go and dive into. I think I definitely want to learn more about like AAC and literacy. I think that that's my goal for this year or for this next few months is to implement more AAC and literacy type activities into my into sessions that I'm working with 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 my clinical supervisor. I think that that's one area that I definitely want to kind of dive in and like learn more about. Um, what about you, Natalie? Yeah, I I definitely think that's interesting. I, um, last semester in the fall, when I was at the school, most of my AAC experience there was in a a moderate to severe um, classroom. And so a lot of the people I worked with had very complex needs and, I mean, were very challenging to work with, kind of didn't always operate under the stuff that I had learned about AAC from um, the camp over the summer. It was a very different population. So I think kind of working with those people who have a lot of complex communication needs is an area I'm really interested in learning more about right now. Cool, cool. Now, Alexis, there was something you talked about at AAC in the desert. I wanted to bring it up. I hope you're, I hope you're okay with this. And yes. I meant to put it on before, but I, I forgot. So you see my <laughs> wrist is bare yeah, here, but it's, it's sitting right there next to my bed. I could go get it. It's right there. Do you have it, Natalie, that you could show? Yeah, the, yeah there it is. Yay. So, I, I gave mine all away. I don't have any more. I need to make <laughs> oh, no. list, actually. So let's talk about it because this is an audio podcast. People don't know what I'm pointing at besides my wrist when I say so. It's um, so it's like a uh, uh, a band with Velcro that has uh, communication. Well, you you describe it. Why am I doing it? You <laughs> <laughs> okay? So it is a bracelet. So that has um, like kind of. So it's called a core word of the week bracelet. So what I did is I went on um, a Microsoft Word document and then went on to chat editor. You can use whatever symbols that you're using and downloaded the symbols onto the Word document and then made it and made it to like a rectangle shape and then cut it out, laminated it, and then said core word of the week bracelets. And then I put like week one, week two, week three, and then put little Velcro um, circles at the bottom or of each to make the bracelet. So my kind of thought for that was that um, they can be used as kind of like a trendy thing too. So a lot of the times kids have like, they have like a lot of trends in school and they'll usually put a lot of stuff on their backpacks or they'll do, um, they'll hang stuff. They'll wear a lot of bracelets or they'll hang stuff up on like whiteboards and stuff. And so I thought that this would be a good way to kind of make like a trendy statement and also have a, be a good way for teachers to give this to parents. Like say if parents are picking up their kids, they can easily, you know, just kind of slap on the bracelet. Or if, um, the student is going to OT, maybe the student, maybe the teacher kind of puts the bracelet on the child and sends them to OT. So they kind of know, everyone knows what core words, um, are to be modeled that week. And I also think that it's a great way to kind of show sequence. So if they're, if, the word is kind of two layers deep, then it can, the bracelet can easily show the sequence pattern. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I found it to be very successful. I thought a lot of the, um, paras kind of were using, were modeling more once they had that, because the second that you look down, you kind of are like, Oh, I should be modeling. And then you kind of model really quickly. So I definitely think that that's a way. And I, 
think that the neurotypical kids also kind of were able to model with the, with the bracelets and they kind of, they were wearing them around. So I thought it kind of brought awareness, um, just for modeling throughout the whole school. So I loved it. I thought it was a fantastic yeah. idea. Yeah. Yay. That's so cool. So if people wanted to reach out to you, how would they get in contact? So to get in contact with me, you could email me at alexis at wespeakaac.com. Um, that's a great way to get in contact with me. I could definitely send you the um, Word doc that I have. So all you will have to do is input icons into it. The layout is already made. So I could definitely send those to you if you guys need them. Cool. Maybe we could post it up on the show notes. Would you be cool with that? Yes. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. And Natalie, how would people get in touch with you? Yeah. So you can contact me at um, Natalie Fry, just N-A-T-A-L-I-E-F-R-Y at email.arizona.edu. I recently learned that I get to keep my Arizona email after I graduate. So I, I like that one. Um, awesome. But yeah, and um, you know, if you have any questions as a student or as a supervisor or anything, you know, I it when Chris invited us onto the podcast, I think I, Alexis and I both kind of felt like, oh gosh, like you know, we're not really AAC experts, you know, as students. What are we going to be able to talk about on this podcast? And so, I just really um, thank you, Chris, for having us and kind of having confidence in us, and um, you know, really wanting to hear what we have to say as students. It's really I think our perspective is important and it's, it's important to kind of as almost professionals next year, um, kind of really be a part of this conversation. And I'm really glad that you kind of let us have a platform today. Absolutely. I agree. Thank you so much, Chris. We really, really appreciate you bringing us both on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you could come on. I'm so glad that we have a, a next generation that's going to be carrying this, this ball forward for AAC. And uh, I just so appreciate your time and your efforts. And I can't, see, can't wait to see what happens in the future. Talk to you Thank soon. You. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye, guys. Stay safe, okay? I'll let you know when this is coming out. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, Thank that you was so much. great. That was so great. So great. <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you later. Nice seeing you. Yeah, have a great week. You too. Bye-bye now. Bye. Hi, I'm Mei-Ling Chan. And I'm Martin Sibley. And we are the hosts of the Exceptional Leaders Podcast, where we spotlight high-profile topics and amazing people who are changing the worldview on disability. Even though we are oceans apart, we are bringing people from all over the world together to discuss inclusion, advocacy, accessibility, and real-life journeys. So listen to the Exceptional Leaders Podcast to hear the voices and stories from amazing changemakers and be inspired to make a real difference in the world. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.